our faithful and loving Savior and Lord, Lord Jesus. Today of all days, we ask that you'd break new ground with us, that here you would make new wine, that we would go out of here different, that whatever it is we bring in here that keeps us from seeing that you're present in our lives, that keeps us from seeing that you're present in our church, in, our, in your family here, whatever it is that we bring in here today, that you would overcome it, good, bad, whatever it is. Because only you're the one that knows what's really going on in our hearts when we walk in here. So Lord, we are asking for something supernatural today. I'm asking you, we're asking you, that you would show us your presence in a powerful way that you're doing a new thing here. That by the power of your spirit, you're moving around, you're creating your family here in such a way that when your spirit says, okay, now, we'll see amazing, wondrous things that only you can do. And we don't need to understand it. We don't need to have it all dialed in. In fact, we'd like to keep our hands off it because we know there's so much more than you want to do than we can get our hands and our minds around. So, Lord, today, would you just do that, that you have promised to make all things new and every person and every part of this family. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Good to see you today. I'd like to ask you to think about what actually happened. Because the guy just showed up. There was this married couple walking back to the next village after a weekend away, because that's what people uh, do in that part of the world. And as they're walking, uh, they're talking about the weekend. It was supposed to be like an amazing like pilgrimage weekend, like they were going to see some miracles, and it was going to be incredible, and it was going to be just amazing. And what they saw was horror, literally. I mean, it was terror, mob violence, and horrific things, and they'd killed Jesus in one of the most horrendous ways possible, and they'd seen it all. And they, they couldn't figure it out. What was God up to in all this? What, how could this be his plan? And maybe they'd believed in vain, and they were just kind of leaning on each other as a couple and trying to understand this. And they, they were so into trying to understand and the, the burden that they were bearing that they didn't even notice him, this guy coming up behind them. And he came up and uh, came up beside him and said, hey, can I walk with you for a while? Sure. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And they stopped and they looked at the ground. What is this guy? Is he just so cold-blooded that he doesn't get what happened? I mean, he's, he must have come from Jerusalem because he's coming from that direction. It's not that far away. Or maybe he's just clueless. Maybe he's a Pharisee spy. Ah, it doesn't matter. Things are so messed up now. Who cares? So they look at each other, and Cleopas, the man, says, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened this weekend? And the man got this kind of wry smile on his face and said, don't be silly. Let me tell you about what the scriptures say about what happened this weekend. 
And so he starts to unpack this stuff, stuff they'd never thought of, like he was a, a Bible genius or something. And all of a sudden, as they were walking along, they felt, all of a sudden, they felt this flicker of hope, and then they felt this flicker of joy, and they started to feel like, wow, what is going on here? This is amazing. And they just kept silent and were walking and kind of nodding their heads. And then they came to the next village, and they were going to stop at the inn there and have something to eat for dinner and maybe even spend the night. And he acted like he was going to walk on, but he's, they said, hey, why don't you come on in? They said, he said, okay. So he comes in and, and they sit down for dinner at the table and the, the, the innkeeper serves the food. And, and uh, then all of a sudden this guy takes a piece of bread and he tears it, prays over it, and hands it to them just like Jesus. Poof, he's gone. <laughs> and there, at that point, we aren't told this in the Bible but I'm pretty sure there was head slapping going on. Why didn't we think that, wow, that was him. He was here all along. Didn't our hearts warm? I mean, we could feel it. We knew it. We knew there was something about that. And then he did exactly what he did in the upper room. He broke the bread, and boom, that was him. You see, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, obviously, in the New Testament, but he also wrote Acts, in fact, I don't know if you knew this, but Luke and Acts used to be the same book. In the early days, that's what, exactly what it was. They passed it out together. It was one book, Luke-Acts. And so Luke-Acts, three chapters later, Luke uses the exact same expression to describe something that was happening among the early believers, among Jesus' family in the early days. One of the things that they were devoted to, he says it right here in Acts 2.42, the verse we've been unpacking, they devoted themselves, in other words, they persistently were all in with the apostles' teaching to fellowship and to breaking of bread. Now, breaking of bread, I'd like to be devoted to that, wouldn't you? I mean, I like to eat bread. I like eating. Maybe you like eating. I mean, I would think we, most of us like it. We know we got to do it. It's a part of life. But eating together, I mean, really eating together as a family, um, for example, isn't something that you can do at a distance, right? You've got to be close up. You've got to be sort of intimate. And to really have a dinner together where everybody's not just sitting there in silence and kind of not okay with each other, you've got to trust each other a little bit, right? You've got to be trust that you're going to be able to you know, share what you want to share and not be put down. You've got to trust that your mother-in-law is not going to poison the food or whatever, Right? I mean, there's a certain amount of trust. There's a certain amount of, and that's the same as true in the Jesus family. That's why they devoted themselves to it. It was a way of expressing togetherness, and togetherness is the operative word here. It was, it, we see the word togetherness all through this passage. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. It's the operative word, you see. But I think there's something else here, too. In this breaking of the bread, this eating together, the, this doing life together, because that's what it is. It, it's a way of seeing Jesus in our midst. Because, you know, our trust is there. Our guard is down a little bit. We're close in. Hey, let me tell you what happened to me this week. Let me tell you what the Lord showed me from the scriptures this week. Let me show me this so far. So, you know, we're, there's stuff going on. We say, oh, we're seeing Jesus. You see, here's the thing that I think we in the 21st century need to understand I really believe that just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus that I told you the story about in Luke 24, 
just like those disciples saw Jesus after they realized who he was and then realized, ah, he'd been here all along. That happens to us all the time. You see, I think we should legitimately, according to what the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit, we should legitimately expect Jesus to see Jesus more and more clearly today than they did when he was still walking the earth one place at one time because now he's all over all the time but by the power of his Holy Spirit he's just as present as Peter says if we believe Peter when he says we have the scriptures made more sure if we believe Jesus when he says I'm going to be with you uh, to the end of the age and you're going to I'm more with you now than I was then if we believe that then we ought to be able to realize, and it shouldn't be that much of a stretch to think that when we gather together, break bread together, fellowship together, worship together, hear the apostles teaching together from this book, that somehow we're going to see Jesus just as readily, maybe more readily than those people did that were living then. How about that? I think that's what it's saying. You see, this kind of dynamic of God's people coming together and, and uh, living in a, in a world where the people start to look at it and go, there's something different about those guys. There's even something different about the way they eat. I mean, it's not about that they don't open their mouths when they're you know, full of food. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there's something different about how that works. And that happens when we promote and proclaim Christ. Not just, pro- not just proclaim him, not just teach about him, but we live together among each other as if he's really there, and we live out there as if he's really there, because he is. That's what breaking the bread together is. In fact, (coughs) we see this, and we sort of experience it as we look down at verse 36, or sorry, 46, (coughs) excuse me, of Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin at the beginning of the verse. I didn't, I didn't put the first half of the verse of 46 on the slide, but that's okay. Uh, the Apostle Paul didn't have slides. We're good. But here we go. <laughs> Every day they continued to meet together. There's our word, together, in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. So here's what's happening. They're meeting in the temple courts in a place called Solomon's Portico. You can't see it anymore today because the columns are gone, but you can see the area on the Temple Mount when the Muslims let you over to that corner of the Temple Mount. It's kind of the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And there were these columns, this colonnade. They call it Solomon's Colonnade. And, and they would meet there by the hundreds, even the thousands daily, apparently. But that's not the only place they met. They also broke bread in their homes. There's our breaking bread. And they ate together. There's the word together. And they did it with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's a connection here with what God was up to in terms of not just proclaiming, but promoting God, promoting Christ among their fellow people, men. And how they did that was to be together in this different way. In a significant way. And we're going to talk about what, what that way actually is. But I want you to notice that they had joy and sincerity. Or as I told you last week, that word's better translated generosity. They had this sense toward each other like, I want to give to you. I want to help you. Give me my time, my resource, whatever it is. I just, I want to be there for you, man. And, and the word, word glad is actually the word joy. It's the same word that Luke uses. Uh, remember Luke Acts. He, the same word he uses back in ch- uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 to describe the birth narrative of Jesus. Remember? I bring you, great tid- uh, I, I bring you uh, good tidings of great joy. 
That's what this is. Why? Because Jesus was here then, Emmanuel, God with us. And when we break bread together, he's there then, Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than just code language, this breaking of bread for communion. Sometimes we rack that up. And yeah, it's partly that, but it's more than that. And that's why we kind of kind of start off by talking about it that way, that it's, it's more than that. Let me just really quickly review where we've been, <clears throat> because if you're, you haven't been here last couple of weeks, I want you to hear kind of where we've been, catch up. And if you're a person who's here who doesn't even, you know, you don't, you don't know about Christ, uh, you're not sure you really buy into the Jesus thing and all that, and you're not a believer yet. Okay, that, that's, that's great. I honor you for being here, for checking it out. But I just want to explain where we've been. We've been talking about this thing called devotion, devotedness uh, uh, that these, these early believers had, and they were part of Jesus' family. And we talked l- the first week about uh, you know, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to hearing what Jesus actually said and trying to bring it into their lives. But then they, they lived it, and they lived it in such a way that they lived it in fellowship together. Or what we said was real, a, a better word might be for community. They were living this thing out. They were, they were committed to doing this. They were, they were stuck on doing this. This is exactly what they were trying to do. And what I think they were trying to do is to, is to live in such a way of, of, of uh, who we are. In other words, let's put it this way. These four things that we're looking at that they devoted themselves to, yes, they, they all involve things they did, but instead of just actions that they took, they were more expressions of who they were. These were expressions of, this is us. This is, well, of course we're going to do this, because this is us. This is what Jesus taught us to do, so we're, this is who we are. This is why we're doing it. And, and the reason for that was they knew that there was a truth out there. <clears throat> they knew that God was up to something. They knew that when they became Christians, Jesus wasn't just their Savior. He was. He forgave their sins. Thank God. That's what the gospel means. But that's what the gospel launches. It just starts there because he's not just Savior, but you give your life to Christ when you discover that he's Lord of the whole planet of the whole world, of the whole cosmos, he has come not only to forgive our sins, but to set up his kingdom, and he's afoot. He's at work. He's in the midst of it. So they did the things Jesus asked them to do because because they were the people that Jesus asked them to be because they wanted and devoted themselves to more than anything else, seeing what he could do and what he would do and what he promised he would do. And that they would see him in their midst and they wouldn't miss him. They wouldn't, wouldn't see it. So it, it, it says here that they did this in their, in their homes, this breaking of bread in their homes. You, 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 can't, so you can't eat like, you know, by the thousands, can you? You, you, you can't um, uh, do it by yourself. <laughs> you know, this isn't TV dinner time. This is, this is hey, you know, this is something more that's going on. There's a, a, dynam- a relational dynamic. And, and, and what you see here, if you've ever been to Israel or uh, someplace that has ancient excavations from the first century, like Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, they actually uh, believe that we've discovered Peter's house before Jesus called him. Because remember, he, he came from there as a fisherman, right? They think they found his house, and there's a lot of reasons for that, including uh, the finding some uh, amulets and things on, on the ground saying, this is Peter's house. I mean, that kind of thing. Uh, but I won't go into all the details, but if you look down, you, there's this church that's built over. They build a church over everything over there. So they built this church over, a Catholic church, and you can look through the glass. It's about a 10 by 10 square room with a really big house. This is a fancy house. 
They had a tiny little room off to the side of it. You couldn't put 1,000 people in there. You could barely put 10 people in there. So if they were going to their homes, those are the size of the homes. If they're going to their homes, what is this? This is dinner for eight. This is life group. I don't know if your life group eats, but ours does, and we have really good food. We have fellowship as a result, in the midst of it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it, that's what this is. You can't do that alone. You can't live and see Jesus to the level that he wants you to see him by yourself. And what happens when we come together is that there's this dynamic that people see Jesus in us and we see Jesus in each other, and that happens when people see the joy of our coming together. That we, we, we actually enjoy being together with one another. That we actually are, are drawn to one another, if you will. That's, that's the reality, this sense of joy and the sense of, of presence that these people saw and these people experienced. I, I, I've been reading a, <clears throat> a commentary uh, didn't read the whole thing, but I read on, on these, uh, this chapter by a man named Daryl Bach. He's a professor down at Dallas Seminary, and he really kind of zeroes in and incisively describes this passage and what's going on uh, in the breaking of the bread and all these things they were devoted to. I want to read you a fairly long passage from that commentary, and, I, I, and it is long, but I want you to kind of let these words soak in and, and see, uh, you know, try to understand what, what this what these people's actions are trying to tell us about who Jesus is really among us in 2019. Their life as a community was a visible part of their testimony. So people looked at it. In sharing Christ, they also gave themselves. One can share Christ not only by what one says about him, but also by showing the transformation that following him brings. So He's saying this, this gathering together in the homes and breaking bread and fellowship and all that, that is not normal. It's not usual for human beings to do that. As proof, don't look at them right now, but imagine some of the people that are sitting around you right now that you would never hang out with otherwise. There's a sense of supernatural, miraculous dynamic right there. With Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, ending as it does, Luke wants to leave no doubt that there is an important connection between community life and the favor of the community experience with outsiders. They saw that these people had something different. Everything about the Gospels and Acts tells us that God's people are to take the initiative to show community and to serve those around them. Much in Western culture drives us to an individualism that undercuts the development of community. Boy, howdy, does it ever. We, taught, we have, are taught to have things our way, and that being able to have our own individual needs catered is to how to measure the success of an organization. That's how people today do the checklist on the church, isn't it? Did I get what I wanted? Did they offer me the service I was hoping for? Sort of like Fred Myers. In our culture, our individual needs and rights come before any needs of the group. The biblical picture is not what someone receives from the church, although one does receive a great deal. 
but what one gives and how one contributes to it. The portrait of the early church in Acts shows that community and the welfare of the group were a priority when the early church said that God cared. The care they gave their own demonstrated this. And the world was banging the doors down, wanting to get in. I want some of that. You see, that I think is what, a good description of what is actually happening here, including the breaking of bread. You see, this is why we started with the awesomeness of God back on Labor Day. You know, the awesome terribleness of God, including, you know, Jesus, that he is that holy. His holiness is just, you know, it just kind of makes you go, whoa. And yet it's attractive. And, 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 and we're not to that level. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is that the truth really is out there. And everybody's looking for the truth. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs something or somebody to put their hope in. And, and we live in a culture that's anti-authoritarian, anti-authority, and so forth and so on. And, and, you know, anything that smacks of somebody telling me what I ought to do, I reject it. I mean, we, that's part of the mess we're in. But, but that, that's really what, what it is, right? But, but in, the, in the midst of that, just kind of pull back the curtain before we have, a, you know, this visceral reaction to that. Just think, yet even the people who are most extreme in that, they believe in some hope. They're putting their hope, even if it's in themselves, they're putting their hope in something or someone because you can't live without it. You can't live without the idea that there's got to be something more to my life. You can pretend they're not, and you can say, ah, this is all there is, and blah, 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 and science proves, blah, 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 blah. But really, there are all kinds of markers, even in those people, including, you know, people like Richard Dawkins or somebody who, they, why did you say that? Why do you care? Because, yeah, because you want something more. There's got to be something more. I, let me just give you a couple of exhibits here. Exhibit A is, maybe you heard about this. Uh, there was this thing that went viral on the, um, on uh, social media, and it was all over, and there was supposed to be this big, big gathering, this big protest at the gates of Area 51 down in New Mexico this week, okay? Show us the space people. Show us the space saucers that the government's hiding from us. And part of what fed this was, I don't know if somebody in the Navy aviation department thought this would be a fun idea, but there were three videos in the course of this gathering people that went viral of UFOs, so-called. And the Navy came out with news at the beginning of the week, said, yeah, you know, we can't explain those either. Ah, see, the government admitted it, admitted it. What's the, you people don't even want to believe in God. Why do you want to believe in aliens? I mean, what's the thing? Exhibit B is in the same context. About the same day, I was having dinner with my son, Ben. You know, most of you know him if you've been here very long because he speaks up here once in a while. And if you've been here very long, you know that he, he has been going down uh, into Portland and he's, been, he's become a pretty, you know, regularly uh, cast member of the theater community in Portland and the, and the musicals. And he's been in some pretty, you know, highly rewarded musicals and so forth and so on. And... What he's found in the, in the theater community is that almost every person, there's one or two Christians that, you know, say, hey, I'm a Christian, you know, next to him. But everybody else says, uh, you know, Christians are the problem with this world. We need to shut that thing down. Religion is killing us, especially Christianity. We got to shut that down because that's what's taking the world down. So they blame the mess of the world on us, basically. 
until they found out Ben was a Christian. <laughs> and, then, and they said, oh, everybody except you, man. I mean, because, oh, man, I like you. They call him the pastor now. They call him the preacher, which, you know, I said, how do you like that? Oh, funny, Dad. But anyway, but so we're having dinner the other night, and he says, you know, almost all my theater friends are totally into uh, spirituality, especially astrology. I said, what? Wait, 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 wait. What are you talking about? Are you telling me that they totally reject God, they totally reject Christianity, that at least has some historical evidence that's worth checking out before you reject it, but they're giving their whole interest and their whole lives to their, their signs and the constellations adding up, something that's a bunch of ancient wish list hooey? He said, Dad, everybody's got to believe in something. You've said that before from up front. Oh, yeah, I have, haven't I? But that's exactly what, you know, what, what we need to understand. That the, Yeah, these people are saying, yeah, the truth is out there, all right. You see, here's the thing. There's got to be a difference between the way we look at what's out there than the people that aren't believing. Yeah, I'll tell you something. There's something that drives non-believers crazy, and it should. And if you're not a believer, you probably will back me up on this. But that's when Christians say, you know, you really should be a Christian and so forth and so on, but their lives don't display anything. You're caught in the same rat race, caught in the same trying to fit this thing in and that thing in, you know, while you're doing your job, while you're watching your TV shows, while you're, you know, uh, going to soccer games or whatever it is. None of those are bad, obviously. But somehow, what's the difference? I mean, your life's no different than mine. That just, it just feels like hypocrisy to them. You see, there's got to be some kind of difference. That's what these people had. That's what these people experienced. Now, I said that, um, you know, this was about breaking the bread and eating meals together. And, you know, oftentimes we think of this breaking of the bread as, well, Dwayne, isn't that just a code word for doing communion in the Lord's Supper? Well, it's certainly a part of the, the, the Lord's Supper is a part of it, but it's only one part of it. But the Lord's Supper sort of extrapolates into what's going on in Jesus' family. And let me explain what, what that means by going to a passage that the Apostle Paul writes in, in the whole, half the chapter, virtually, of 1 Corinthians 11, is the Apostle Paul talking about how to do communion to the Corinthian church. And here's why. Because the Corinthians were totally messing it up. In fact, let me just uh, read it for you, and I'll explain what I, what I mean by that. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So this is directly from Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and then went poof. No, that wasn't this time. That was another time. He broke it and said to them, this is my body, which is for you. This is in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For, watch this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim me and what I did. So this communion is a way of saying to the world, to everybody, 
Yeah, and, and to everybody in the Jesus family, you reclaim it to one another that we believe that, that this is true. This is, this is absolutely true that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead to beat back the power of sin and death. Now, you, you look at this in the way Paul describes it and you go, well, Paul, why, why are you being Captain Obvious here? Of course that's what this is. And that's how it, that's, we, we know that we've read the story. But you see, Paul says, no, 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 you got to take it back. Corinthians, you got to take it back. You got to take it back to the elementary principles because you're not seeing the difference. You're not see, you're, you, you know, you're, you're living just like everybody else. And what you're doing with the Lord's Supper is, um, is counterfeit, really. And, and what, what you need to understand is in the New Testament, they had these things called agape feasts. Agape feasts were love feasts. Agape, Greek word for love, but it's this unconditional Christian love. They, they, they uh, you know, the New Testament writers kind of take this love or this word out of the Greek language to describe the, this beyond uh, expected kind of love of God. And so they had these agape feasts and they would gather together. But in Corinth, the Corinthians, they were, they were sort of devolving into, um, you know, hierarchy things and devolving into really drunken brawls in some ways. And let me tell you what they See, the, the Corinthian people were wild and crazy people. 400 years before this, they were a part of the Peloponnesian League, the Peloponnesian Wars. And, and so, you know, like Sparta, Spartan, uh, Sparta, you ever seen Spartacus? I am Spartacus. That thing? Uh, they were a part, because uh, Sparta wasn't that far away. So they all joined together on, the, at, at, on their peninsula to go against Athens, which was across uh, the water. And when they conquered Athens, this 400 years before this time, the, the Corinthians said, okay, we conquered them. Now let's kill them all. And it was the Spartans and Spartacus. I suppose he's a make-believe guy, by the way. He said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. They were more noble. But the Corinthians weren't noble. They said, oh, come on, let us kill them. Right? So this was a wild and crazy town. But what had happened in the, la- in the 400 years since that is it had turned into sort of like Portland, Oregon. <laughs> because it was every kind of wild and crazy religion you could think of. And these people prided themselves on being pioneers and being the toughs. Toughs in business. Toughs in, in uh, you know, sports, their sports activities. I mean, they kind of, and, and toughs in their religion too. I mean, they, so when these people came into the church, became a part of the church, they brought a lot of cultural baggage with them that just caused these meals to go nuts. And so when they would, they would tack on the, the Lord's Supper to it and have real wine, they wouldn't just have a little small cup of wine. They'd keep down and a little bit of Jesus' blood must be good and keep down in it and down in it. And they just kept going and going and going and completely disrespectful. And Paul is saying, look, what you're doing with this is actually having the opposite reaction God intended. And because of that, you need to understand this smells like smoke, not like heaven. This is not heaven on earth. If you're going to do what you're doing right now, go back to the tavern down the street. Do it there. If you're going to do what you're doing right now, go to the pagan temple because you're not worshiping God. You're separating yourself, you know, rich people here, poor people here, people with power and prestige over here, people that have no power and street cred, you know, the plumbers, you sit over here, that kind of stuff. And that's, Paul said, that, that's horrific. It's horrendous. So what Paul basically saying is, look, somebody's got to be the parent, and I guess it's going to be me. So he gets very parental here but very powerfully. Look at verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Lord Jesus. Ooh, that sounds serious, and it is. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the, or, sorry, eat, eat and drink without, dis, uh, sorry. Everyone should examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. He says that three times here. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the presence of Christ in this, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What in the world is he saying there? You know, I mean, is it how? Is it, you know, just exactly when? No, not that. What he's saying here is this, the reality of Jesus happening and seeing Jesus in our midst happens in the Lord's Supper when we eat together when we know in our hearts that this is a most sacred of truths that we're involved in right there. What he's saying here, I mean, you can see it when you start to unpack that with the verses, words of discerning and the word unworthy matter. Discerning means seeing what's really real, right? Seeing the clarity. But in the Greek language, there's an added dimension to it of seeing the sacred, seeing the holiness in what I'm doing. It's clearly in that word. And, and then that means that, you know, up there in verse 27 where he says, in an unworthy manner, you know, we usually look at that and say, well, if you, if you take communion by, as a non-believer, you're drinking judgment on your head and so forth. Which, yeah, which is why we don't judge you for sitting there and not taking it if you're, if you're not a believer. But it also means, because think of who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians. It means that we can do the same thing if we're being flippant about it, if we're, if we're not really, you know, <clears throat> uh, giving ourselves to it in the way that it really is. If we don't see it as sacred, that this is a sacred moment and this is a sacred truth that Jesus shows up when we break bread together, boy, howdy, he's saying that's, that's a problem. That's what we're in danger of, and that's what the Corinthians were in danger of. Now, let me just say this. We, as uh, the kind of Christians, the flavor of Christians we are, we don't believe that the bread and the, the uh, juice are actually uh, Jesus' blood and body. We believe that they're a strong symbol, but what we believe is, is that we do this reverently, not because of, uh, you know, the, the elements themselves, but because of what they represent, that Jesus is really here that he's really present here when we do this. He, uh, th- this is why we don't have to have, you know, ancient bread that doesn't have yeast in it, and we can use juice instead of wine. It's okay, because Jesus wasn't giving us dietary instructions at this at all. He was saying, look, you do this, and you, when you do this, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there in a special way. But So do it sacredly. What he's saying is, is not only is he sacred, not, only, not, not just that the act of communion is, and, and by the way, communion goes both ways too, right? The communion plus the Lord's Supper, you could use that word either way. But it's not just that that's sacred, it's us. It's the coming together that is sacred. And when we kind of get sort of flippant because our theology says that it's not really the blood and body of Christ, blah, 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 we can slide off real quickly into a side that is less than the sacredness of what Jesus and the Holy Spirit is doing here deserves. That's, that's what Paul is saying. And that's why he's, he's challenging the, the Corinthians on this. Look what he says uh, going on in verse 30. That is why many of you among you are, are, are uh, weak and sick. I didn't put that in the screen either, either. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But, verse 31, if you... <clears throat> Uh, were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. 
Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So, then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. It's the together again. And and he says, if you're hungry, you know, instead of getting into a food fight, (laughs) eat at home a little bit first. And, and so it's this, this sense of um, that there's something more going on here than just normal eating. There's something supernatural that takes place that is beyond our feelings. You see, this, this together, this, this, this joint community of family happens when people see the supernatural difference in our togetherness. And when we see it, when we see it among ourselves, and it's obvious out there that there's a supernatural difference to it. And it doesn't mean that, you know, have you noticed, you know, in our culture, we're all about discerning what's true and what's not true by how I feel about it. Have you noticed that? Nothing wrong with feelings, but that should not be the highest authority as to whether or not something's really real. Really shouldn't be. And we tend to kind of do the same thing with our, our spiritual lives, with, with what God's doing. Do I, how did I feel today? How do I feel and so forth? We tend to elevate it to it. And, and, and here, here's what, I, what I'm trying to say. If, if we come to listen to the apostles teaching in this word, if we, if we come to fellowship with people, if we break bread together and eat together, and it's like, well, you know, Dwayne said that this was a supernatural thing, and I really didn't get a buzz today. I really came hoping God would say such and such, but he didn't say anything about that. Is, is he still at work? Is that still supernatural, the coming together? And what this sense it seems to say is yes. Because he, the God, the Holy Spirit, is piece by piece building your life and changing your life and transforming your life. You can write this down, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Don't have it on the screen, just came to my mind, but read that about that's what God is up to. Piece by piece, day by day, building your life into more like Jesus. But more than that, he's doing it piece by piece. He's building his family here in that moment. That's a sacred thing. At the very least, what God is doing to gave, buzz or no buzz, is that he's, he's giving you something to file away because you're going to need it. Or probably more likely, he's giving you something to file away because you're going to need to share it with a brother or sister in Christ very soon. Or someone, you know, uh, that's a friend of yours that doesn't know him yet. There's this, this stuff is going on all the time. And that's what makes it so sacred because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in what we're doing and what we do together. It's a supernatural thing, and it's a difference. It's the supernatural difference. Now, let me just read for you a, a, a passage from a, a book that um, Jordan gave me. Uh, and, and if you're a, a life group leader, you've already read this. And uh, I've just got the first chapter, our first introductory chapter, and I'm, I'm excited to read it because of what I saw. But I want to share with you a quote because it describes who we are and what it means when we come together, breaking bread together or in fellowship and so forth. Look at this. It says, what is community in your church? On the one hand, I want to raise the bar of what you envision church community to be. Of all the ways that the gospel changes the world, the community of the local church is the most obviously supernatural. 
That's what this is. I mean, you know, just look at it from the large picture. I mean, you know, how many times has people, have people said the church is going to be dead and gone in 30 years and 40 years and 50 years? Throughout history, people have said that, e- even recently. Here we are. Its witness even goes beyond the world. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. You might want to look that up too, by the way, because that's a powerful statement of what God wants to do or what the Spirit is doing through us in our togetherness. Uh, in this book, I'll define local church community as togetherness and commitment. We, ac- we experience that transcends all natural bonds. On the other hand, I want to lower your ambition for the church community. That is, I want to lower your ambition for what you can do to create community in your church. Scripture teaches that the community that matters is the community built by God. We, we We may cultivate it, feed it, protect it, and use it, but we dare not pretend to create it. When our hubris, in our hubris, we set out to, quote, build community, we risk subverting God's plans for our churches. And I'm afraid this is something we do all the time, says Mark uh, Deaver. See, here's what I think he's saying. It relates back again to Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Who gets the credit? matters as to whether or not it's going to happen. This supernatural thing that God wants to do among us. You see, here's the thing. What I think that quote is saying is, it's not any program that makes this happen. It's God that makes this happen. It's not any particular meeting a certain way that's over there that makes this happen. It's God that makes it happen. That's what makes this, us, so sacred. That's what makes it so holy because he's the one doing it and what he's doing and what those programs and what those things we do and the reasons we gather and the reason we come together and break bread and we do life groups or we do dinner for eight or we do uh, Sunday morning worship or whatever it is we're doing. The reason we do all that stuff is because the Holy Spirit has prompted us to do it so that we will be positioned and in a place for him to do his unique supernatural work among us and bring others to him when they see the difference in here. And when the Holy Spirit says, okay, I think you're ready, okay, now. That's what all this is. Whether I get the buzz on any certain Sunday or not, it's coming. The reality is the Holy Spirit's just waiting for things to be just in the right place and Everybody, the critical mass of people in the right heart. You see, we live in a culture that's got a critical mass of people that say everything's mess, everything's terrible, there's no hope. They're, it's just dystopian doo-doo. We're just duck. We live in a culture that's, you're hearing that all the time. And granted, there's a lot of muck. But if you look at what Jesus said, in spite of the cross and beyond the cross, he has a very optimistic view of what's coming. And he's preparing us for that coming. And he's not, we won't be prepared if we're not doing what Jesus asks us to be devoted to. That's why we're positioning ourselves. That's why we're doing what we're doing for the Holy Spirit to do it. But it's not us that's doing it. It's also why I'm so concerned about some Christian leaders and some authors and even songwriters and evangelists who've put out on social media stuff be careful what you put on social media, man. I've put out stuff that says, you know, I'm just so messed up. I'm just like you. You know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, don't think that I'm higher than you. I'm just so messed up. Sorry, that is a terrible thing to do in the public. 
Because here's the thing. If you're still struggling with sex or lust or your faith or whatever it is, like you were five years ago, you got to ask what's happened in the in-between five years. You got to ask yourself, what, is, is God the Holy Spirit working on you or not? Are you, are, you, are you growing or not? And if you still do have those problems, please understand me. Please, 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 please. I'm not saying we shouldn't admit when those struggles, we have those struggles or when we're carrying a burden that we shouldn't share it. We absolutely should, but the place to share it is here in the community, not just with the pastor, but with, the, all the, with your community or your life group and say, hey, can we walk together on this? That's what we're there for because someday you're going to need them to walk with you and, and, and that kind of thing. That's what this is. That's what makes this so incredibly sacred. And I'll make a statement that's going to sound radical and maybe in your face, not your face, but in the culture's face. And if, if, if this is someone, if someone's here who's not a, a believer, please don't misunderstand because I'm not, I'm not making this statement toward you. But because of that, because of the supernatural work that the Holy Spirit is doing among us, in, in, in our time, in our world, uh, that is so sacred. We can actually say that our strugglers are better off than the bright lights that are just holding it together out there in the world. That's true. And, and I've seen it a thousand times. You see, here's, I think, the point of what Luke wants us to understand from seeing the lives of these early believers, our foremothers and forefathers. It was, in the New American Standard Version, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. It was the Lord that was doing all this. It wasn't us pushing the ball up the hill. We need you to understand that, Luke would say. It was God did stuff that when we least expected it, which is the best kind of church growth, by the way. And, and see, see, the difference is, is this. We don't reach more people like living, by living like everybody else. God the Holy Spirit makes that happen when we live the difference. And then God the Holy Spirit takes it from there to places we never thought possible. We never thought we could go together. But that's what he does, and he does it when we come together. Now, I'm going to invite the band out here. And as they're coming out, I just want to talk about how we're going to do the Lord's Supper communion today. I want to ask you to have an attitude and approach to the Lord's Supper. And there's no thought police because this is going to be kind of in your head. So don't worry about that. Uh, and again, if you're not sure what this all means and, you know, don't, <clears throat> you're not going to be looked on weird for staying in your seat. But as we share together in communion today in the Lord's Supper, I want to ask us to think about it the way Jesus intended it, I think and from what we've heard today. I want to ask you to think about it not in terms of a devotional moment for you personally, although there are those moments and that's legit. I mean, I'm not dissing anything the Lord's told you through communion. But I'm going to ask you to kind of pray and go there with an attitude that says, what we're doing right now, because we're doing it together and eating together is sacred, man. This is sacred ground. Not this building, but the people in it. This is sacred. This is, oh, this, is, this is people that are committed to one another that says, I'm in with you. You're mine and I'm you. We are in communion together. Because you see, this is us. This isn't just something we're doing. This is who we are. And, and this, is, 
This is the reality of what Jesus is forming more and more and more by the power of his Spirit. We have no idea what he's going to do if we just have a bit more sense of how precious this is, this thing called us, his family. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being here and saving us from our sin. But thank you that that's not all it is, but that you came to set up your kingdom on this earth, that you're the king, that you're the authority. You've always been the authority, but now you're making it real more and more every day. You're taking more and more ground and more and more lives back to the, the, yourself every day. And it's because of what you did on that cross in dying for our sins and shedding your blood and breaking your body and, and then raising from the dead so that we could live on for eternity with you. Yes, but you broke the power of sin in our lives right now. So Lord, may that reality become true to all of us today. May we recognize the sacredness of what it means that we're doing this together. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. And thank you for being here in a the most real way possible, up close and personal at this moment in this day. Amen.